the observance night, half moon, going on towards new moon. Next week is the new moon night. This is the last, what is it, this, the 7th of February? This is the only 7th of February 1991, and it's on, and it will be over at midnight. There will be never again another 7th February 1991. Each day is completely unique in itself. It is like yesterday, February 6th, 1991. There'll never be another one in your, your life ever again. Completely unique. Each day goes by. And each day is totally unique. And they all pass. And then when you get old, you just, they just, they even speed up. So life is like this. Remember when we began this retreat, we, we are accepting the all possibility, all that happens is a part of our practice. There's nothing that happens during this retreat that is not part of our practice of Dhamma. It's all reflection, recognition of all that is subject to arising, is subject to ceasing, recognizing that, that we can't find any kind of eternal soul or personal essence in any of these conditions. that I emphasize this is for investigation, not for belief. When you're trying to find something, uh, then you will you always be looking for, you're always looking around for something, an object to find or discover. How many of you have been bitterly disappointed in this retreat because you haven't been able to find something? Find that, your real self, or that that which knows. How, how many of you want to find the one who knows? Where is it? You know, and you keep looking. Uh, maybe if I sit long enough or practice hard enough, I'll suddenly find it. I'll suddenly awaken to that ultimate reality. And that very desire is the obstacle, isn't it? That desire, that assumption. We're working with the immediacy of the desires that, that even motivate us into practicing meditation, becoming Buddhist monks and nuns. Some of you look pretty glum and miserable because you, you don't know how to let go of anything. You're just so obsessed with yourself. You think about yourself all the time. And you can create problems. You go around and around with all the earth, with all these thoughts and views and things. You never transcend it. Become so interested, so centered on yourself. And there isn't any self. But you get caught in that pattern. That's the avicca bhajaya sankara. Sankarpajya, Vinyanang, and so forth. Sometimes it's way just a sigh of relief to 
Nothing to do, nowhere to go, nothing to become. Just here and now. And yet, you can create all kinds of problems about this monk, this nun, this lay person, the sangha, the community, Amravati, Buddhism, Theravada, Christianity, the world. And all this is just the, the proliferation, conceptual proliferation, the papancha of the mind that is caught in ignorance, avicca, and then the vajaya papancha, sankaras, endless proliferations, which are absolutely uh, without any essence, any substance, anything real, they're just figments of the mind, phantoms, specters. Tis we who lost in stormy visions keep with phantoms an unprofitable strife, and in mad trance strike with our spirit's knife in vulnerable nothings. That's what you're doing. And in mad trance, strike with your spirit's knife in vulnerable nothings. And then you go around blaming people, making all kinds of somethings out of nothings. <coughs> now, weather is this way, isn't it? This is just uh, the the experience of cold and snow and ice and and all that that brings. Being born means that we're subjected to the changing conditions of of the weather on this planet. It's just life. Life is like this. Uh, human form with its sensitive nature and its feeling. It's going to feel cold when it's like this. Uh, this is what cold feels like. It's inconvenient, isn't it? It's not convenient. The snow it gets in the way, and the ice uh, you know, freezes the plumbing, and and it's just terribly inconvenient for us. It gets in the way of practice. If we could only create a an environment where there is is a, it, you know, we get this perfect. Uh, lifestyle with no inconveniences. But being if being born means that we're going to be subject to inconvenience. It's just part of the part of the package. You get born, you're going to have a life of filled with inconveniences. Frustrations, irritation. Why do you think you shouldn't? What is so special about you that you think life shouldn't be inconvenient or irritating for you? When it is for everyone. Being born is is this it's this way. It's filled with this this kind of experience. So we reflect, we 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 bring into our consciousness that life this is what life is, what being born is about. 
being born is, if we weren't born, we wouldn't be experiencing the cold. But because we're born, we have this body that's going to get cold when it snows and freezes and things like this. It's not Britain's fault, is it? You don't blame it on Britain. Wish we were one was in Tahiti and all this is just the, the silliness of the human mind. This is life. It feels like this. We're going to be irritated by each other and we're going to experience the ups and downs, highs and lows, elations, depressions of a sensitive situation. It's just the way it is. But the refuge isn't in high or low, is it? It's in knowing. It's in this cool, aware knowing of Dhamma, the Buddha seeing the Dhamma. Some of you see things in a very shallow way still. You're not, there's not much depth in how you interpret your experience. It's still very, uh, on a very kind of superficial level. Because you, you don't, you don't really investigate. You more or less form opinions. <coughs> Easy to just, just form opinions about things. Then to really investigate, to look into like the the pattern, all uh, the conditioned and the unconditioned, the born and the unborn. That that's a pattern. That is a reference <coughs> point. That is something to investigate. But how many of you still have minds of, uh, you know, like the he hurt my feelings and she doesn't love me anymore and. And I'm upset because he thinks that I said that she thought because they weren't exactly sure about what that other person was saying when when she was telling him about that incident that happened ten years ago. And then the old gossipy, you know what, what I heard today? Do you know who has a crush on who? Do you know who has, has got eyes for who? And who heart, who, who goes a bit fluttery when so-and-so comes around? And all this is like, really disgusting, like you're in, seventh grade again. (laughs) So we find out that emotionally maybe we aren't very mature, we aren't very developed. Some some people even, you know, have gone through uh, universities and still emotionally on the on the heart level is still that le- you know that at that stage of of uh, she loves me she loves me not kind of emotional plane I'm kind of looking for 
for someone to, to love me, someone to understand me, someone to nurture me, someone to to tell me what to do, someone to praise me, someone to appreciate me, somebody who will take care of me, somebody who will be my friend. How many of you want want a real close friend out of the song? That somebody a special relationship like Margaret Thatcher has with Ronald Reagan. Where does this come from, this desire to have special relationship, a meaningful uh, sharing and, uh, uh, you know, a, an intimacy in that with somebody else? You know, on a platonic basis in the song, we can't get into an intimacy, uh, too much intimacy, without breaking the rules, but a certain level of favoritism and preference. But this is it's also quite natural. We certainly find affinities uh, in preferring certain people over others. It's just the way it is. But we're here to see the Dhamma, not to, not to develop this, not to make this into something. Not, that's not what we're here for. That's not what we are expecting. That's not the way out of suffering. So we contemplate our own, the way we react and uh, respond to the life that we're living here. We study it, we reflect on it, we learn from it. And from whatever Wherever we happen to be, on whatever, don't be a, don't be frightened of your emotions, but just try to to accept them and know them for what they are. Admit them into consciousness. So we're not trying to act like mature monks and nuns and and uh, and suppress our feelings, but. In this life, we can at least allow the the emotional nature, when in its in its uh, immaturity, in that to be a consciously experienced. Because it's when we allow these fears and desires, emotional <coughs> conditions, into consciousness, that we can uh, understand them, understand them as dhammas. When you understand something, then you can let it go. When you let it go, then you realize the the uh, cessation. And when you realize the cessation of a condition, then you realize, then you have that insight into the Eightfold Path. It is an ongoing uh, and determined effort we have to apply, because we, it takes time to release. It's not you're going to suddenly have a big catharsis, and then transformed overnight into this totally kind of uh, balanced, mature, wise, uh, compassionate creature. 
one can have insights, that, but still it takes time to wear away, to let go and to realize cessation from coarse to the more subtle refinement from clinging and grasping. The sad news of the uh, the the uh, the first uh, when the uh, Iraqi troops invaded last week or uh, crossed over the Kuwait border into Saudi Arabia and attacked the first Americans killed were six or seven Marines who were killed but they were killed by Americans by accident. So the first, the first body bag sent back to America. They talk about body bags. First body bags were American Marines killed by the Americans. That's ironic, isn't it? Who's the enemy? Now, if you're one of those Marines, dead, you know, you know, get killed by your own countrymen rather than those, than those uh, evil uh, Iraqis. We all know that Iraqis are evil, but when you get killed by the, the angelic, uh, pure white American troops, something's wrong, isn't it? Can't trust anyone. And President Bush is on a kind of, he's on a high, elated, an elation of America's the best country and, and the, we're setting the tone for the future and America is going to direct the world into the right paths in the future and America is, is so, so stupid and so uh, exaggerated that you just cringe. If you're American, you feel embarrassed. I tell people now I'm from Uruguay. But this is the way the world is. It's like it's been at this stage of its development, humanity is like this. Nations, superpowers, and all this, these are, these are the conceptual proliferations that we, we tend to regard as realities and put a lot of importance upon. We give it gravity. We make it real for ourselves. We worry. We endlessly proliferate get carried away with our strong feelings about these kind of things, about Iraqis and and tyr- uh, ty- tyrannical dictators and 
demagogues and and uh, all the kind of the alliance forces and who's helping and who's dragging their feet and who's uh, pushing ahead and who's the who's the good one who are the good ones and who are the bad ones and this goes on and on and on into uh, this the the problems that come out of ignorance and will never really be solved. They just change. Some problems just change. To resolve problems is is what we're trying to do here. This way of, of reflecting, meditating. Understanding the nature of the mind. Not blaming somebody else. Because we can see blaming is, is, a, is a condition of the mind. If we can't do it, if we can't really penetrate reality uh, under the, uh, when the, all the conditions here are encouraging that kind of realization, then, then we can't very well be too hard on Saddam Hussein or George Bush or anyone else. They're just products of the same ignorant processes that, that, that keep us in a state of blaming other people and feeling sorry for ourselves and being, and believing our own views and opinions and feelings as being real and important. I mean, these people, Saddam Hussein, George Bush seem to power to positions of power that we, we aren't in, but it's the same problem, the same avicca, bhajaya, sankara problem. So one, one realizes it's, it's, we can uh, be quite uh, condemning and self-righteous about them, but just watch yourself. Just see where, where all of that really begins. Just notice your, your own conceit and arrogance and your own tendency to blame and to, to love and hate and to, to want to get even and seek revenge and want to, to hurt somebody else. Or want to um, hurt yourself or blame yourself. It goes both directions, doesn't it? It goes inward, outward. Once, the, if you if you don't spot it, if you don't really uh, recognize avicca, bhajaya, sankara, then of course you're you're always uh, being carried away by that particular sequence. You start out from ignorant, then you just Go on and on, round and around with, with the result of that ignorance. Identification with the body. Identification with the feelings. Identification with the perceptions. Identification with the volition. Identification with consciousness. Now each one of us believes from our own perspective. Like if you, like for George Bush, he sees Saddam Hussein as a Tyrant that's in the way. When Saddam Hussein was fighting, and he actually, you know, when he invaded Iran eight, nine years ago, uh, the Americans were all for it. They wanted to encourage him to go ahead because they didn't like that. Day, those days, they they were pretty fed up with Ayatollah Khomeini. Get rid of that bloke, and then. Uh, and Saddam Hussein seemed a much better kind of 
I mean, he was a pretty rotten egg himself, but it, but you, you're quite willing to go to bed with rotten eggs if you're going to, <laughs> if you're going to do what you want. Uh, prostitutes. So that uh, Saddam Hussein in those days was not. Uh, we one didn't want to think of him as a rotten egg. One wanted to think of him as one who is going to get rid of a, a, a really rotten egg. So you you have a way you can overlook the fact that he. Murders all the Kurdish people. A lot of Kurdish people use biological chemical weapons and and set up a most tyrannical police state in Iraq for years, and has been responsible for endless murders and deaths and terrorism. One can suddenly just kind of it doesn't really matter, you know, just you know, just his way of dealing with problems and. <laughs> But now, Ayatollah Khomeini is no longer a problem. Iran is neutralized, and Saddam Hussein now is the focus. So I imagine Saddam Hussein, if you ask him, he's got his own version about, you know, how he is trying to create this Arab, uh, pan-Arab nationalism and, and bring justice to the, to the uh, Muslims and the Arabs who've been mistreated and, and taken advantage of, exploited by colonialism, Western powers, and those blasted Kuwaitis with their selfish little snobs, those kind of prissy little twits down in Kuwait, who just, you know, live and drive around in Cadillacs and Rolls Royces and and uh, live high on the hog. Muslims don't live high on the hog, though, do they? They can't eat pork. <laughs> live in this very kind of uh, splendid way and won't cough up the, the dough when you need it after all you've done for them. And they, after all, Saddam Hussein helped uh, control and helped stop the, uh, all the, uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini with his Shiite fanatics and stopped that from taking over the Middle East. And so he, he feels very much that Kuwait is just a pain in the neck. They deserve to be absolutely smashed, mesmerized, uh, pulverized, destroyed, annihilated, and incorporated into Kuwait because they are. They were, they were just totally ungrateful, selfish creatures. So he's, he's got his own version of that Kuwait is a, is, Deserved exactly what it got. So, according to George Bush, Kuwait was one of the better Islamic countries. It was never caused any problems to the United States. It was. It had certain things lacking. Yes, it wasn't terribly democratic, but it was was little more than Iraq. And uh, so that these are. Is how how people view and see things, isn't it? Each in how many of you do that here? How many of you look at each other and have form opinions or feel indignant or feel self-righteous and and see things of how somebody did this to me and how this was done to me and that person was wrong? 
And yet you go to the person that you're condemning and you ask them and they see it also in a different way. They, in their own self-righteous uh, interpretation and version. Why is the world like this? Why can't there be kind of absolute rights and wrongs? Why can't right be, be an absolute? Pure white, right, and black is wrong and it's absolutely wrong. And everybody knows it's wrong. And, and, and it's, there's no doubt about it. Why can't life be just black and white? Absolutely right and absolutely wrong. Clear cut. Why does it have to be so complicated and, com- and, and convoluted? You, you hear this person's version and that person's version and you're trying to find which one is right, which one is wrong, which one is telling a lie, which one is telling the truth you realize that it's not a matter of absolute right and wrong or true and false. That life is like this. Each person experiences life from where they are and how they see it and the sensitivities they have or the lack of it, their interpretation. Their, this is the, what they, what, how they're feeling, how one is, how one is uh, experiencing a situation, an experience. How one is, is feeling an experience, or perceives it, or interprets it this way. And it's not going to be the same, is it? It's not absolute right or wrong. Right and wrong are relative. And this is where we find ourselves getting confused, because you think, you're the one who's wrong. You're the one who, who told me, who said that nasty thing to me. You're wrong. And if you think I'm going to apologize to you, you're crazy because you're the one that's wrong. You should be apologizing to me. So then you go to the other person and you say, well, this person thinks that you're wrong. After all, you did say something pretty awful to them and, and they just, you know, they, they, you, they can't and they, you're wrong. You should never have said that to them. Then you find out, well, you know, the reason why I said that was because um, and they have very good reason for saying that, according to the way they think. You can justify anything, uh, robbing a bank, or stealing a loaf of bread, or, or, or murdering your wife. There's all kinds of good excuses. One can justify and defend any kind of action in a kind of self-righteous way. How many people really would, would, would can uh, would you know would, and will uh, just say I'm I'm wrong. I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have acted like that. That was wrong. Or to know what was right, what you really felt, what you really, what your intention was, and have confidence in that. But not to hold to a, a stubborn position, uh, to, uh, to a position out of stubbornness and conceit and arrogance and pride. Be able to bend and flow, to learn, to, to learn how to, to be with life 
in a, as a flowing, as an experience of impermanence and change. Consciousness is a stream of flowing experience, being a conscious being. When you're with, when you're mindful, then you're with the flow of consciousness. It's like this. There's the knowing of the flow of change. There's no fixed position. There's nothing to, to become, nothing to do, nothing to, to get rid of. Because life is this way. Consciousness is like this. We are, con- we are experiencing consciousness. The more mindful we are, the more conscious we are. Many of you aren't really conscious in, 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 through mindfulness. You're so caught up in your own loves and hates that you become stupid and insensitive. You don't see things in the right way. You're always interpreting things in the wrong way. You're always looking at things from, from the wrong view. From, from something, from a distortion. Through, uh, through a, a, a dirty piece of glass or dust or filth or something that is, that distorts and makes things look very different which is your own uh, creation. You create this, this film, this, this scum over your mind and heart. And then you think that, that that's the real world. You think the scum and the, that, that nasty, sticky surface you create in your mind is, is the way life is. Or you blame it, you know, I'm this way because of this and that. But the, recognize that, that the, what the Buddha is saying in his teaching is that our refuge is in that pure knowing, the purity of the mind and heart, the pure-heartedness of loving of being, of being conscious. What is purity then? What is it? When, when, when the mind is pure, do you, what is that? The experience and knowing and being pure is through realization, not through becoming. You can't become somebody who's pure because that whole idea of becoming somebody is based on avicca bhajaya sankar, based on the illusion. So as long as you're trying to become somebody who, who's going to become pure, you're, you're creating this, this scummy, uh, film over your, over your heart. It just gets thicker and thicker. Pretty soon you, you don't even know you have a heart. You just go through the motions of habit. End up as one of these, these kind of wretched old people that just say the same thing over and over again. Play bingo and watch television till you die. I wonder what life was all about. Or read true love or true romance stories and live on the surface of, 
of sentiment. When we investigate the five khandhas, don't don't think that this is just the Wupangani Chang, Wei Dinani Cha kind of chant. This is a real, this is what we're, this is what we learn from, from the bodies we have, from the feelings, from the perceptions, volitions, and consciousness. This is, this is what we investigate. And we have it right here and now, isn't it? It's here and now Dhamma, this body. This body is here and now. And it will be till it dies. Wherever you go, your body's always here and now, isn't it? So that's Santitiko Akali Kodama. To be seen, to be understood, because this is the way it is, where you you go to the toilet, your body you take your body with you. Imagine leaving your body here and go to the toilet. <laughs> Whether you're sitting, standing, walking, or lying down, your body is is involved in that. So that's this is what we have. The body is something to investigate. Investigation is what we have. We're investigating it, not judging it whether we like it or don't like it, or whether it's good or bad, or it's better or worse than somebody else's, or we wish it were more this way and less that way, that's not that's not investigation, that's vanity and stupidity. It's the body is like this, it feels like this, its energies are like this, its organs are like this, its quality, the experience of it, and we're also recognizing it as, uh, as it uh, as quite subjectively, the way it feels. What does it feel like to, to have weight, to be, to have this uh, a weighty body, a body that weighs something, that feels cold or hot, or neither hot nor cold, a body that has pain and and uh, pleasure, pleasurable sensations. The body that that is an energy form in itself, isn't it? Made of the we contemplate the four elements of earth, fire, water, and air. That's just a, a an upai or skillful way of contemplating uh, uh, that which the what the uh, the body. Uh, say in, in, in a discriminative way, what is the solid element or the earth element, the liquid, the fire, the air element? We do 32 parts of the body. It's not to, to, we're not thinking of, of anatomical accuracy, but of just a, a, a way of meditating and looking at the body, contemplating that which is here and now. The thirty-two parts of the body are here and now, aren't they? They're not. They're not uh, just uh, psychological abstractions. When we talk about oil of the joints, we're, we're talking about something that's here and now, isn't it? We all have joints with oil in them. 
moved on, urine. All these bodies are all filled with urine. Well, not totally filled, but <laughs> bladders and that. Urine is in these bodies. It's a different, that's a different, what does that do when you, when you look at somebody and think of them uh, as having urine inside them and when you think of them as a person or a man or a woman? It's different, isn't it? It's a different feeling. When you, when I look at you as a personality, he's like this, she's like that, that's different than when I contemplate the reality of urine or bones or blood. So, uh, investigating, you see the percent, and yet each one of you has blood in your body right now, don't you? Blood is, uh, urine is a bit embarrassing, isn't it? Urine is something one doesn't like to uh, identify with. Blood is okay. It's kind of noble to give blood, go down to Birkenstead and offer your donated blood. But who wants your urine? <laughs> I don't do this. When, when one has to urinate, you go someplace to do it where nobody's going to see and kind of flush it away as conveniently as possible. We have these incredible kind of plumbing these days. Just think of the plumbing here at Amravanti just to get carry away urine. And yet, urine is here and now, isn't it? Urine and blood and bone, muscles and oil of the joint, brain, pus and fat. Kidneys, liver, these these are we're investigating. We're we're recognizing that this is the way it is. This is this is the way life is. This isn't just playing games with the mind, but it's it's bringing into our consciousness the way it is that isn't, we're not making it, we're not judging it on the personal level, whether I like it, don't like it, or, or whose blood is better than whose pus, who has more pus, who has less. Whose oil is the joints is who has more or less, we wouldn't think in terms of comparing each other as oil of the joints, would we? But on the level of appearance, we can say, who has the biggest nose? Who has the prettiest eyes? Who has the, the nicest complexion? Who's the tallest? Who's the shortest? Who's the fattest? Who's the skinniest? Who's the whitest, the darkest, and like this? Are these on the surface of what we see? Because we we pay so much attention, we give so much gravity to eye consciousness. Reason why sometimes contemplating the blood in the body doesn't seem so real to us, say, as as the perceptions we have through our eyes of this person, saying that this this is. Chanda Siri, she is a real person because I see her. She has a birth certificate and a passport that proves. And that's the reality because 
of eye consciousness and the belief and uh, attachment to a perception. It's a perception, isn't it? Pendaceri is a perception of my mind. It comes and goes in my mind. You say, where is Chandasiri right now? You all point to her, but, but actually Chandasiri is a perception in my mind. So instead of, of making a lot about the personal perceptions that we create, one starts looking at the, the, the one can perceive the blood. The, we, we can't see it, but we know, don't we? We all know that, that Everyone in, sitting in this room has blood coursing through their veins and arteries. So that's, that's here and now. If it arises, it ceases. It's this way. Feeling is like this. Now, feel, I'm not telling you how I'm feeling. I'm not trying to get to convey the quality of the feeling I have right now, but I'm just I'm just recognizing feeling is this way. The mood I, the mood of the mind is this way. The posture is this way. There's the there's the sound of silence is this way, and the breathing of the body. This is reflection on the way it is. That's what you trust. Put your trust and faith in that, in that ability to see things as they are. And if you think you can't do it, that see that. The own doubt about yourself is also, it's suchness, isn't it? To doubt oneself and feel you don't quite understand what I'm talking about is also the way it is. It's just that way. So when we appreciate this, and we we sit, stand, walk, lie down, meditate, or not, light incense, candles, offer flowers, chant, not because we should do this, because because this is the way it is. This is our life. Monastic life is like this. Shrines and flowers, incense, candles, robes, monk, nun, Arms, bowls, uh, all of this is just this. This is the way it is. The conventions, the the uh, accoutrements, religious paraphernalia, and so forth. There's nothing to that should that we. It should be or shouldn't or you must or mustn't or you have to have it or you, you should get rid of it. But it's it's the uh, it's where one is with this one can appreciate lighting candles and incense offering flowers chanting can be just uh, a lovely thing to be doing in its own right without feeling that you have to do it as soon as you feel you have to do it something is something uh, kind of lessens in 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 doing it it's not quite as you're not quite with it when you feel you've got to do it when it becomes 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 compulsive, like bowing, isn't it? When you become just a kind of compulsive bower, you feel guilty if you don't come in and you go bump 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 bump, 
and then before you get out, you have to sometimes you have to go to the toilet, and and you you feel guilty if you don't quick get your three bows in before you rush off to the toilet. Becomes one can feel the compelled that you that you should bow every time you move three times, or maybe you think, oh, bowing is not necessary. The Buddha didn't teach bowing, and you can be enlightened without bowing. It's not necessary. Don't bother. Or is just bowing all right in itself? Is is what you make it, isn't it? If done in the right attitude, the right, with the right uh, understanding, then it is uh, a pleasant, beautiful gesture of respect. Appropriate. It's not. It's not compulsive. It's not perfunctory. Or we can just do it in a perfunctory way. It's what you do. What you should do. So in monastic rules and and customs and all that, it can easily become perfunctory. Or what you should do. So you can observe that in your in your practice, in in the way we you relate to the form and the tradition, the the, the conventions we have in this monastic tradition, of of your own tendencies to. To, to make it into something you should, you have to do, you must, or should, or maybe your your beliefs that it's not necessary, you not you don't want to be bothered. Not a matter of you should or shouldn't do it, do it or don't do it. What is it like? How to how can one bow mindfully? What is, how can one put make bowing into a beautiful offering? Not that you should do it, not that you should make it into a beautiful, but bowing we can make bowing into a beautiful kind of act of respect. Or it can be just a perfunctory thing that you do because you you're afraid of what I might think if I if you if you don't do it. And we've become very kind of aware. of what each other thing he doesn't bow to the shrine he should we should all bow you should go in there and bow to the shrine you should always do this and you should always do that all the kind of instructions of religious rites rituals but in Dhamma, then we, we can see these feelings that things should be done a certain way. Not that they shouldn't be done that way, but we're getting to that, that which is, which tends to propel us in, through ignorance into, uh, birth and death. So we, we get, we start from the right place, here and now. Observing the way it is. All that is subject to arising is subject to seizing. All Dhamma is not self. But the guidelines for reflection. 
as artists and creators and beautiful beings, then we, we when we when we're doing something, we we do try to do it well. There's no point in in living monastic life uh, unless you really want to do it well. Not a place to hang out or to just go along in it and in, in half-heartedly. But monastic life, like anything else, if you do it wholeheartedly and do it well, it, uh, it's a, a form of great beauty. But its beauty is from your spirit. You, you're breathing into this form, making it, filling it out with, with energy, make it uh, into a beautiful form rather than a, a kind of uh, form that that is uh, without life, without energy, without beauty. Just a dead thing. It's superstition when you think the form will enlighten you. But it's right understanding when you realize the form is for reflection and understanding of Dhamma. It's a basis, it's a foundation, it's a guide, it's a helpful convention. Monasticism, say Buddhist monasticism, is like any like any other convention, uh, ha, can be a, a form of great beauty and uh, a radiant, a radiant form, or it can be just a perfunctory form, just something there, kind of that you kind of go along with, fit into kind of expect that if you fit into it and go along with it, somehow it's going to transform you. You sit, 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 waiting for suddenly this transformation to take place, doing all the right things, but then nothing much happens. Except you get bad knees or sense of despair. Because your mind's still coming from the superstition that somehow this sacred form is going to somehow change you, make you into something else. Mm. So this is why emphasize this sense of breathing, of putting your heart, your soul, your spirit into 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 what you're doing, into sitting, standing, walking, lying down, be with the flow of life. Develop the form so that it it's not just going along with it half-heartedly, but giving it your whole heart, your life, to where it, then it is uh, a, a form of great beauty and of great benefit to yourself and others. And in this form, of course, we, we reflect on everything from the beginning of ret- the perception of beginning and ending. I said the beginning of this uh, evening talk, this is, this is the last week of this retreat. That's a perception, isn't it? This perceiving uh, the ending of something, 
something that began. So we're reflecting on the way it is. We're not saying, we're, we're recognizing that that, that that is a perception, but we're reflecting on, on that. And we're just the, the, by bringing attention to the fact that something began, something that began to end, even on such a thing as a re- two month retreat, we're beginning to see things as they are. We're reflecting on Dhamma, on the way it is. And that helps us in daily life also to, to more and more see that in our daily lives. The way things are, the, the, the coming together, the separation is Dhamma. Even just like in a morning puja, coming together and separating afterwards. And, and more and more one is a, a, uh, sees the Dhamma in, in all the d- details and, conditions of this life, this lifespan that we have left. There is the Buddha seeing the Dhamma. So I offer this for your reflection for this evening. Mm-hmm.